from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 151 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing well. So enjoying our our lovely spring weather, working hard, just plugging away. <laughs> That's good because we uh, we had tornadoes over the weekend, so that was fun. I heard about that. I saw the weather. I saw people posting on Facebook and all that. So, but you all came through it, okay? Yeah, yeah. Luckily, all of our areas, for the most part, I feel like came out okay from it the scary aspect was that the new stations were ahead of they were actually ahead of the 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 app like the weather apps out there and such so mm-hmm. for example like i was i was glued to the news watching it because i i know like rhino doesn't have cable and he doesn't have any any sort of uh any sort of additional TV app besides just like Netflix and Hulu and and all of those apps. So I know like for weather stuff, he relies on Weather Channel and and other things like that on his on his phone. And like I had to be the one to warn him, like, hey, they're literally tracking it to come right up through your neighborhood. And oh my god! It wasn't until it was probably like i want to say it had to be like two minutes out that he finally got the text message so when the news was saying if you're in this area you have between five and ten minutes to get prepared he still hadn't received a message about it and so i'm like (laughs) like i'm i'm not trying to sit here and pat myself on the back for giving you the message but that's that's what happened and then it happened again to him later in the night where there was another one coming his way that i had to send him a message to give him a heads up on and but even then like that was kylie and i thought that we were out of the clear in our neighborhood and so we turned on a movie i want to say maybe dumb and dumber just have a a movie that we could laugh at in the background a little bit Mm -hmm. and then we got the message going off on our phone about there being a tornado in our area tornado warning and so we threw on the local news real quick to see and they were already at the point the same thing like if you're in this area you have minutes in fact like there was some parts of it that had already gone past us that went right over top of us and past us that they should have warned us sooner about (laughs) And they didn't so it was it was all over the place and the last story from it too was even even pete uh his the the one really big tornado that they ended up saying was an f1 tornado uh that was probably that was a really close to his house i'm not going to give away where his house was but it was close enough that in the path was going towards his house and 
we were texting with another friend in a group message and after the after the tornado warning activity that was in his area went over his house then finally like 20 minutes later he's like oh i got the text message i'm going into to safety on it and i'm just sitting there after it passed after it passed (laughs) he didn't even get the message till after it passed and with that cell that moved up there was a confirmed tornado they were playing the video of it on the news and he's like 32 minutes 30 minutes too late going to a safe area from this and i'm just like oh my gosh what what a breakdown on on news it was a really it was a very nerve-wracking night but then luckily by nine ten o'clock everything just in our area it just all kind of vanished and we never got any any pop-up storms through the rest of the night and yeah we kind of we we got off lucky at least our team i know some people had small damage done to their houses and stuff but uh, it's it's a sign that it doesn't need it doesn't need to be a hurricane in order to have damage and even with hurricanes and tropical storms it's not always necessarily the 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 main heavy part of the storm and rain coming close to you sometimes it's those outer bands that are the ones that kick up tornadoes and stuff and that's mm-hmm. where a lot of the damage can come into play so uh that was my weekend <laughs> Oh gosh, you know it's. I have friends and relatives who always, you know, they always would say to me and and you know my parents, we don't know how you live in San, you know, in in, in California because of earthquakes. And and these are folks that lived like in Tornado Alley in the Midwest, you know, and stuff. And, and I would say to them, we get a serious earthquake once every like hundred years or something, yeah. and you guys. Every year you can count on multiple tornadoes. So I don't know how you live with that. And they said, uh, we get warnings so we can prepare. And, well, apparently not not this past weekend. And and for them, it was the uncertainty of never knowing when the ground is going to move. And um, so... Carol and I solved it by moving to an area that doesn't really have earthquakes. So, um, anyway, but... Yeah, I yeah. So I I, I don't know how y- y'all live with that. <laughs> I, I'm <laughs> really in don't. your boat, though. That's a thing. I would rather have the uncertainty of an earthquake. Granted, I've never. I, I think I've said it on the show before. I think I've gone through one earthquake that I know they reported was there, but I couldn't. I, I don't think I could feel it or anything really. If I did, I'm just making it up in my head, probably. But I I would rather have the uncertainty of an earthquake versus those stressful moments as you're just sitting and and riding out this rough weather not knowing not knowing if it's going to mean damage to your house to windows to anything damage to yourselves Mm -hmm. to pets and then the the electricity loss that almost inevitably comes after it it's it's been it's been really really terrifying at times and i i'm still getting used to it because i i've said the story before i uh, growing up in pennsylvania you know we didn't really have to worry about anything i think we had like two tornadoes my entire time there and that was that was it besides uh, besides really bad snow that was kind of the worst of it i moved down to florida and from 2010 to 2016 i didn't deal with a single thing it was then once i bought my house in july 2016 then we've had some type of at least small activity every single year 
since then mm. and it's been i'm still getting used to it but the tornadoes they they scare me that's that's something yeah. that is it's nerve-wracking to me but that's probably from growing up watching twister and movies <laughs> yes, like that cows flying through the air <laughs> yeah <laughs> so anyway but um well i'm glad that everybody is safe rode those things out so you know you know on the on this show we we try to avoid um getting into politics and social issues because that's not what this show's about it's a family show and we know people of all ages listen to it but um so you know we commented briefly last week on on some of the stuff that's going on but over the weekend i was looking for i just wanted a fun film to watch and for some reason i chose zootopia and as i'm watching it i came to realize you know if it was a it was very topical for what 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 we're going through today and it maybe if folks want to introduce maybe some of what um, we're experiencing right now to young children that film might be a good venue to do it through. And um, anyway, and, and it's a good film. <laughs> I, I enjoy it. I, I don't think it should be built in the animal kingdom. That's a whole other thing. But anyway, so anyway, that's just something off the top of my head, is that if you need to discuss discuss any issues with young children, Zootopia is a, would be a great film to open up those discussions in just sort of a safe way that maybe children can relate to. I haven't. So I haven't watched it since theaters. I, I bought it, and when it came out, even though I I was adamantly against it in theaters, I did not really care for it. But I, I need to rewatch it again. But uh, going, you know, so I can't really comment on that. But I did. Uh, Kylie and I on Saturday morning we did watch the uh, the Sesame Street special that they did in part with cnn that i believe is available on youtube to watch for free and maybe a couple other outlets but uh also i i mean in that regards that was very well done for for kids helping them to to understand but also not just for kids it was it was done really well for adults as well too and they they tried to speak to both audiences and uh, I oh, I really enjoyed it in in that way. Excellent! Oh, I'll check that out. I didn't even realize it was on, but I was working on the show Saturday morning. Oh. The show we're going to do today. Leave it to and me. Then, to um, and then bring in anything Muppets <laughs> and Sesame Street related. I know. I was going <laughs> to. I I was going to say, yeah, of course, it's the Muppets, but uh, you know, as long as they weren't dressed up and doing it from Liberty Square. <laughs> from a window I'm fine with it <laughs> but um, anyway yeah and then keep an eye out for story time with Michael on the weekends I you know I, I rehearse those shows <laughs> I mean, you'd never know it with the last one the Mickey Mouse one with uh, you know Mickey and his spaceship because I I um and, and you know, I should have listened to it, and I didn't. I just wanted to send it off to you. Because I think I referred to, uh, I, I, I meant to say Liberty Square, and I said New Orleans Square. And I, w- and I, I knew that. But anyway. <laughs> I must have missed that, too. Yeah. Oh, well. What can you do? But it's still a good story. I love those little golden books. Yeah. They're so <clears throat> I found charming. another one. Yeah. 
I found another one that actually is based on one of the silly symphonies that probably a lot of people don't know about. It's a Walt Disney um, golden book. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of, um, I picked it because it's themed for Father's, well, I'm picking it because Father's Day is coming up, but it's not a Father's Day book. But um, So that'll probably be in a couple of weeks or so. I don't know, because I know we have another one that caused all the headaches a couple weeks ago Yeah, that's still waiting to come out. Yeah, so, one but, day. Um, give, <laughs> yeah, but um, give that a listen. So, yeah, um, sometime on late Saturday, I think is 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 when they they come up on YouTube. Yeah, we're doing it around uh, around bedtime for uh, bedtime for the East Coast and for the West Coast. You have a little extra time. <laughs> so oh, good. Well, that's good. So for the children who go to bed a little earlier. Yes. On the West Coast, it'll be there for the really young ones. Yep. Okay. Well, this week we are continuing our series on Walt Disney's animated cartoons and features that we started way back. You know, in past episodes, we've discussed the Alice comedies, the Oswald the Lucky Rabbit series, and Mickey Mouse's career from Steamboat Willie to Fantasia. Well, in this episode, we are going to begin exploring Walt Disney's innovative Silly Symphony series. And by the mid-1930s, Mickey Mouse was the Walt Disney Studios superstar. And it was occasionally its spokesmouse. Many considered Mickey Mouse to be the alter ego of Walt Disney. Less than a year after Mickey's debut in Steamboat Willie, Walt Disney and his animators started to release a series of cartoon shorts that were more daring, quirkier, and surprising than anything seen in the Mickey Mouse cartoon shorts. It was because of the silly symphonies that critics described Walt Disney as a pioneer, an innovator, and a popular entertainer who was starting to turn animation into a serious art form. Although Mickey Mouse remains famous, only a handful of silly symphonies are remembered today. Most Disney fans know the skeleton dance in the old mill because they tend to be Halloween favorites. Most of us know the three little pigs thanks to the song. A couple of the characters that came from the silly symphonies are well known, like Donald Duck, Pluto, and the Big Bad Wolf. Rivals and successors to the silly symphonies are still well known. I mean, who hasn't heard of Looney Tunes or Merry Melodies? Yet, in the 1930s, critics considered Silly Symphonies to be the Walt Disney Studios' most exciting work. British film historian Paul Rotha wrote, To many writers at the moment, Disney cartoons are the most witty and satisfying productions of modern cinema. Disney's peers in the film industry recognized the brilliance of the Silly Symphonies as well. The Silly Symphonies won the Academy Award for cartoon shorts each year the awards were offered in the 1930s. Sometimes as many as four Disney cartoons were nominated each year, but the Mickey Mouse cartoon shorts never won an Oscar. The Silly Symphonies and Mickey Mouse shorts were the only American cartoons honored in the international film festivals during the 1930s. The Silly Symphonies received seven Oscars, a number rivaled only by the Tom and Jerry cartoon short series. They were one of my favorites when I was a boy, Tom and Jerry. Yeah, I love Tom and Jerry. And I feel like that's one 
<laughs> cartoon that still gets played pretty regularly to this day on uh, on different channels still all across cable so i haven't seen i haven't seen them in a long time i didn't know they were still around yeah i want to oh i want to say it's all on boomerang which i know not everyone gets that unless you have one of the digital mm-hmm. cable packages that has every channel plus so many other ones that you you don't need but i feel like i i've seen uh, that's the channel where i've seen tom and jerry but I'll, I'll try to pinpoint that oh, down okay. too to let you know because I know, I know you like catching up with that stuff. But I hate when it gets me in thinking that like they'll post like wacky races and other Hanna Barbera stuff. Oh gosh, I remember those. Yeah, it won't be like it won't be the classic wacky races. It will be the remakes that they did, I guess, in the late '90s, early 2000s, or sometime. Um. And then I'm like, ah, wasted, wasted my time getting my hopes up for. For these classic cartoons, only to, to I watched the away. Wacky Racers when I was a boy. That was like when McGilla Gorilla and Peter Potamus oh, and all those Hounds, were on. All the yeah, all the classics. Yeah. Quick, quick draw McGraw. Yep. Yeah. Which would not <laughs> exist to this day because of guns. So. <laughs> I know. I know. Don't get me started on the HBO Max and Elmer Fudd. How can his chasing Bugs Bunny with a scythe be any less <laughs> violent? <laughs> Gun. <laughs> anyway, we we we're getting off the topic. Yes. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully Disney won't do anything to scrub the silly symphonies. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Anyway. From the beginning, the Silly Symphonies were the building blocks for Walt Disney's animated feature films. Walt first adapted fairy tales in the Silly Symphony series. Some of his greatest technical innovations were developed through the Silly Symphonies, such as his use of color, intricate musical synchronization, the multiplane camera, in-depth perspectival backgrounds, and animation special effects. Walt usually assigned his best animators, directors, story people, songwriters, and composers to the Silly Symphonies. These would be the people that would go on to work on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, and Bambi. Name your favorite vintage Walt Disney film. There isn't one scene in that film that wasn't worked on by a Silly Symphonies veteran. The idea for the Silly Symphonies originated with the music composer for the Walt Disney Studio, Carl Stalling. Walt had hired Stalling in 1928 to write the musical scores for the first two Mickey Mouse cartoons, Plain Crazy and The Gallop and Gaucho. And while Stalling is away to New York to work on the recording for Steamboat Willie, Walt stopped over in Kansas City to see Stalling, and that's when Stalling first proposed his idea. The first time we know of Walt, of Walt um, mentioning Stalling's idea was in two letters Walt wrote to his brother Roy and to animator Abiwerks. In the first letter, dated September 20th, 1928, Walt writes about an idea for a musical novelty, some combination of music and animation. In the second letter written five days later, Walt goes into more detail and writes that Stalling has pitched an idea for a film he called The Skeleton Dance that takes place in a graveyard. Walt said, 
Carl's idea of the skeleton dance for a musical novelty has been growing on me. I think it has dandy possibilities. By the time Steamboat Willie debuted at the Colony Theater on November 18, 1928, Walt and Ub were already working with Stalling to create the skeleton dance, which amazes me. With everything going on, they were already well into the Silly Symphonies. So it makes one wonder why was Walt so quick to move on to another type of cartoon series when Mickey Mouse had just been introduced to the public? Well, according to Dis- Disney historian J.B. Kaufman, he thinks that the Silly Symphonies freed Walt from the restrictions of a star personality. The series also played to Walt's early fascination with eccentric dances and music. But most importantly, it gave Walt the opportunity to break away from the gag-centered cartoons in favor of atmospheric mood pieces. And, and we know that Walt tired of gag-centered cartoons pretty easily. I mean, that's why he moved on from, uh, you know, the Alice comedies, because he got bored with those. And he was even... Um, he was even starting to get a little bored with the Oswald series and, and again, the gags. So uh, so I, I think Kaufman is correct that Walt was looking for something else because the Mickey series was, again, you know, gag-centered. Now, Walt thought the skeleton dance would be dandy with all the effects poured in it. Walt grew excited over all the possible special effects experiments. I think we could cartoon the skeletons and double print over a real background. The grim imagery of skeleton dance is rooted in La Danse Macabre, a medieval European allegory about the inevitability of death. Dancers and puppeteers borrowed the imagery for performance material. The American Mutoscope Company produced an early film version with a costume dancer in 1897. Thomas Edison's company filmed a marionette show version the following year. As a child, Stalling was intrigued by an advertisement promising a dancing skeleton puppet for 25 cents. But Ubba Iwerks took away the images of any gruesome qualities by making the skeletons more comical than creepy. Carl Stalling adapted the music, The March of the Trolls, or March of the Dwarfs, depending upon um, what, what you're reading, um, and he used that for the score. Stalling composed the score first, then Iwerks animated the film to match the meter and melody. It took Ub Iwerks working almost single-handedly close to six weeks to animate the skeleton dance. This inaugural Silly Symphony cost the studio $5,485.40 to produce. Despite the film being ready to release by late March 1929, it took Walt close to three months to find a major theater willing to show it. Finally, with little fanfare, the skeleton dance debuted in front of Fox's Four Devils at the Carthay Circle Theatre on August 22, 1929. The skeleton dance startled first-night critics. No cartoon, including the early Mickey Mouse cartoons, 
prepared the audience for the manic energy, rich atmospherics, or inventive syncopated movement of the cartoon. The most important innovation in the skeleton dance is that the musical score and the animated action were planned, designed, and executed in unison, wrote essayist Richard Hildreth. The response to the skeleton dance was just what Walt knew it would be. Here is one of the most novel cartoon subjects ever shown on a screen, wrote Film Daily. When the film was booked in New York at the Roxy Theater, the theater's impresario Samuel Roxy Rothafel wrote Walt a note calling the skeleton dance one of the cleverest things I have seen. And more importantly, the audience enjoyed every moment of it. Just a year after Steamboat Willie debuted, Walt Disney had wowed the public and the critics with another groundbreaking film. Today, The Skeleton Dance is ranked number 18 out of the top 50 cartoons in the world. So, Craig, is The Skeleton Dance one of your um, favorites of the Silly Symphonies? um, It's not one of my favorites, per se. So, I feel like that's being a little harsh because, obviously, it is a classic. So, I I don't want to make it seem less important than it is. But uh, it's... It's definitely it, it's primitive, but it mm-hmm. was it's the beginning, so you don't expect it to mm-hmm. be like some of the uh, higher caliber productions they've made later on down the line. But uh, I I know that we you know brought up the the fact that the skeleton dance goes hand in hand with Halloween, um, or actually I think we talked about that before we started recording, but uh, it, it's. To me, it's one of those it's one of those silly symphonies that I have to watch during the Halloween period. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's I, I try to watch every every single uh, Halloween period. I try to watch the Disney's Halloween treat, uh, a bad copy of it on YouTube, and you know that's the skeleton dance is a big part of that intro and and such. And that's that's kind of where I discovered it and really uh, grew fond of it. And so I. There's many reasons why I, I I do have a great admiration for it, but it, it's not like it, it, if I ever had to choose five, it probably wouldn't be in my top five, but it would it would make top ten, I think. Okay, yeah, I it, it's I, it's not one of my favorites, but I always watch it at Halloween. um, But I I just imagine 1929 and, you know, what was popular back then, you know, Oswald was still around. There was Mickey Mouse. There was Out of the Inkwell. There was Felix the Cat, Betty Boop and all that. And then this appeared on the screen. I I would it would it would must have been just, I don't know, mind boggling to audiences, you know, back then, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, despite some initial excitement, because Walt was already talking about a 12-short package, the spooky short film baffled prospective distributors in both New York and Los Angeles. Still, Walt was committed. It's hard to explain just what we have in mind for this series, but I feel myself that it will be something unusual and should have a wide appeal, he said. After seeing the overwhelming positive reception to The Skeleton Dance, Columbia Pictures 
contacted Walt about distributing this series. And from 1930 to 1932, they were the exclusive distributor of Silly Symphonies. United Artists would then take over distributing this series. The skeleton dance would be the template of the Silly Symphony series, built on comic dance routines and classical music. Carl Stalling's musical pastiche style of composition, combining unrelated classical melodies and pop tunes with original bridge music, distinguished the Silly Symphony scores as playful and comic, with a musical openness that was ahead of its time. For its effects, the Silly Symphonies benefited from the studio's pinpoint synchronization of music to image, where the movement could land precisely on the beat. No other studio could synchronize sound and image with such precision. For Steamboat Willie, harmonica playing animator Wilfred Jackson had developed a mathematical system of animating to a timed rhythm. Disney made marks a bouncing ball on a work print of the film to provide a visual representation of the rhythm. Carl Stalling made the next development, assuring precise pacing of animation and music, a metronomic rhythm supplied via headphones to musicians, matching the visual rhythm used by the animators. Called a click track, this device is still used today in most recording sessions. The ingenuity of the comic interplay of the character's movement with the music is what captivated many moviegoers. Now, Ub Iwerks, feeling like he was not being properly credited for his work and feeling Walt was interfering too much with his animation methods, left the Walt Disney Studio in 1930 at the urging of Pat Powers to start his own animation studio. Best known for his Flip the Frog cartoons, Iwerks Studios only lasted six years. In 1937, he produced a quartet of Looney Tunes for Warner Brothers, and eventually, in 1940, Ub patched things up with Walt and returned to the Walt Disney Studio, where he worked on creating visual effects for films and the theme parks. Music director and driving force behind the Silly Symphony's concept, Carl Stalling, left the Walt Disney Studios at the same time because he did not care for Walt's leadership style and was unsure of the future of the studio. He first composed scores for Iwerks Studios and then for Leon Schlesinger at Warner Brothers, where his innovative musical scores accompanied their version of cartoon shorts, Merry Melodies, including his music for another Warner Brothers classic, Looney Tunes. Stalling scored over 600 animated features during his 22 years at Warner Brothers. After his experience of losing Oswald the Lucky Rabbit and a defection of most of his animators to Charles Mintz in 1928, Walt began to divide the work of animating films to factory-like assembly lines, which enabled him to survive the departures of Iwerks and Stalling. And that was one of the things that irritated Ub, because he liked to do everything himself. And Walt was always on him for not delegating work to the junior animators. And also, Walt would, and if uh, Ub would make um, metering notes on his own storyboards that he did, and which there were six drawings to a page and um, on, his, on the storyboards at the time, and Walt would come in and change the metering 
uh, and that annoyed uh, to no end. <laughs> anyway, so anyway, so Disney promoted animators who seemed to be good organizers and leaders to the position of directors, then established constant rotation of creative teams, ensuring a free flow of ideas and preventing the development of close personal alliances among his employees. New composer Frank Churchill generated entirely original music, freeing Disney from the expense of buying rights to popular songs. So creativity flowed from this system, leading to the development of true character animation with the release of The Ugly Duckling on December 12, 1931. So loosely based on the Hans Christian Andersen fable, The Ugly Duckling is the first time a cartoon actually explores cartoon de- uh, character development. And although the drawing style is still simple, the main character suffers the kinds of emotion that will become the core of Disney's later feature films. So rejected by his family of chickens, the duck loathes the reflections he sees in a pond. This is a moment that will be repeated over and over in the Silly Symphonies. How the child overcomes their feelings of despair varies from film to film. In this cartoon, Disney explores childhood terrors and anxieties. In the 1931 version of The Ugly Duckling, the duckling becomes a hero and saves his mother and siblings, so now he is worthy of love. This theme is seen in Pinocchio and Dumbo. However, in the silly symphony Ferdinand the Bull, he survives by just being true to his gentle nature. In the 1939 remake of The Ugly Duckling, which was the last silly symphony, he no longer has to perform heroic deeds. He is loved for just being himself. So have you seen both versions of The Ugly Duckling? I think I have. I I mean, I... I can't imagine that I haven't, but I... Yeah. The I, f- first one's black and white. And that's that's the one that's not really ringing the bell as much for me. I know I've seen the color one, mm-hmm. for sure, but I'm, mm-hmm. I, uh, it's just not sitting with me. So, is it on the Walt Disney Treasure set, the black oh, and white? Oh, that I don't know. I think, they, I think on the Treasure set, they both are. I'm not sure, though. But because, uh, like we talked before the show, I'm missing. I only have one of the two treasure oh, sets. Yeah. So <laughs> well, that doesn't so, help that um, uh, question. Yeah. Um, yeah. I. I mean, long story short, on it, anyways. I am. I'm, I'm very familiar with the color one. The the mm-hmm. black and white one isn't. It's not. It's not nodding anything. And I didn't. I didn't look that up before we did this episode. But I. I love the color version. Mm-hmm. Oh, the color version is beautiful, and it has that happy ending. And uh, but yeah, if you watch the 1931 version, it is on YouTube, and then see the, the and then watch the newer one, the 1939 version. I mean, the progression in terms of story and animation and um, backgrounds. I mean, everything you you just see the the leap that they made in just those few years. Yeah. Uh, and and their skill in storytelling is amazing. Yeah, that's part of what I love about the 39 is that it's at that same quality of what you expect and see from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and and other mm-hmm. uh, other things being produced at that time. It just 
you know, I think you and I both agree that while there are many different eras of, of Mickey Mouse and Walt Disney animation, there is something about that time period in the late 30s, early 40s that it just has a warmth to it that is it mm-hmm. really sticks with you to this day and mm-hmm. it actually it actually makes it almost more timeless um a, a lot of a lot of stuff during what what did people call it the dark ages of disney and and even before that even some of the stuff in the 60s and and so like it's it feels very much of that time whereas whereas these like with the ugly duckling and other stuff in the late 30s early 40s i feel like that's it just has this timeless appeal to it about the only thing mm-hmm. that doesn't is the the music with it it's got that it still has that uh, very early early sound design in music and in in sound that's just not quite quite as crystal clear yet as as it will get later on but yeah 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 and, and the music's very much of its era but it's um beautiful mm-hmm. so but, but. Well, with the expanded budget for the series due to the new contract with United Artists in 1932, the studio could break ground with color and high-fidelity RCA sound. Flowers and Trees in 1932 challenged not only Walt Disney's fellow animators, but filmmakers in general, by making the first successful use of the controversial and expensive three-strip Technicolor process. Moviegoers did not like the muddy hues of films made with the two-strip Technicolor. The December 17, 1930 issue of Variety magazine used the 1930 Warner Brothers film Warner Brothers Gold Diggers of Broadway as an example of the high cost of two-strip Technicolor. Black and white release prints of the feature would have cost $63,000. The Technicolor prints totaled $451,000. The public dissatisfaction, combined with the high costs, led studios to abandon Technicolor. Craig, are you familiar with the two-strip Technicolor process? I think I am, but I'm not... Because I was wondering, what, was it just that the colors were just not vibrant i mean not because i mean studios just drop this very quickly yeah i i mean that's like with any technology the the first versions were not as uh, definitely vibrant's a good word to use with it uh not not it kind of it, it was and you even wrote it down in there with the muddiness uh, it definitely had I, I think those those are good apt descriptions of it, but it's it's new technology. It needs to it needs to flourish a little bit in order to to get perfected. Yeah, I'm gonna have to see if Gold Diggers of Broadway is around anywhere <laughs> to see what it looks like, or I guess look at any color film from 1930. <laughs> um, the Technicolor's 1932 answer to this was even more expensive. The news three-strip process provided much more accurate color representation, but also demanded more exacting mechanics and processing. It was a desperate move. Technicolor's annual revenue had fallen to $500,000 from a high of $5 million in 1929. 
Only the Walt Disney Studio was willing to experiment with the new process. Walt Disney's Flowers and Trees was in the process of being animated as a black and white cartoon. But once Walt Disney saw the new Technicolor process developed by scientist and inventor Herbert Kelmus, he decided that Flowers and Trees would be a perfect platform to try the new color three-strip Technicolor process. When Kalmus and Technicolor approached Walt about using this new process, he agreed only if his studio was offered an exclusive contract to use the technology. That meant that other studios, such as Warner Brothers, Fleischer Studios, and Columbia, were banned from the new process and had to use the Cinecolor two-color method or the less effective Technicolor two-color method. The Walt Disney Studio had an exclusive contract with Technicolor through 1935. But one source I read stated that due to pressure from other major animation studios, the contract was changed to one year, but I couldn't find anything to back this up. And I couldn't imagine Walt and Roy capitulating, you know, to this. So, um... So I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. Before we uh, go further, I did look up real quick. I looked up the gold Mm -hmm. diggers of Broadway. And visually from that, what I guess the best way to describe it is that look is very, it's heavy on like sepia tone. So kind of that, that tan look that you'd almost see in a lot of, uh, in a lot of Western films, kind of that, Mm -hmm. that, that normal element. So, like in terms of colors that pop, like reds come off kind of as oranges, uh, greens kind of show through. But really, it's just it's very, it's very, it, like I don't want to just say brown because that's not there's colors distinct colors coming through. But muddying is kind of the best term to say it. It's just it's it's like it's like it was cleaned off, but it just didn't quite get all the way clean. Oh, okay. How interesting. Yeah, I'm going to look that up after the show. So thank you. You're welcome. So Walt had the partially completed Flower and Trees cartoon footage abandoned, much to the displeasure of his brother Roy and wife Lillian, and reshot in the new color format. Walt Disney, who was the first cartoon producer to have his staff take art lessons, added color theory to the curriculum. The Disney-developed color palette became the model that Technicolor used in designing films for the next four decades. Flowers and Trees was met with amazement at its July 15, 1932 openings at Grauman's Theater in Los Angeles. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences gave a special Oscar to Technicolor for its color cartoon process, another to Walt Disney for the creation of Mickey Mouse, and the first Oscar for a cartoon short to the studio for Flowers and Trees. A Disney film won that category for the next seven years. After the success of Flowers and Trees, all subsequent Silly Symphonies were released using the new process. This helped the series, because unlike the popular Mickey Mouse shorts, the symphonies produced disappointing returns. But the first Technicolor animated short was not Flowers and Trees. Ironically, it was a short cartoon by Ub Iwerks. His first character, Flip the Frog, made his debut in the short Fiddlesticks, and it was the first 
cartoon released in the two-color Technicolor process and to use synchronized sound, making it the first color sound cartoon ever produced. Phyllis Fiddlesticks was released on August 16, 1930, two years ahead of Flowers and Trees. But Flowers and Trees' distinction is that it was the first three-strip Technicolor process. So, so Ub Iwerks did not is not remembered in history for the first color cartoon. No, we'll remember him on the show. Oh yes, absolutely. (laughs) Despite being a success with critics, Flowers and Trees initially lost money. Color Walt knew was not going to be enough. He also needed a good story. And not just a good story based on the common cartoon gags popular in his Mickey Mouse series. He needed a story with strong characters. Walt Disney's wife Lillian and her sister Hazel Sewell, head of the studio's inking and painting department, and and again, just want to point out that this is 1932, and there is a woman head of a major department in a film studio. Disney was the only one to do that for years and years and years to have women heading departments so in the film industry. So want to give him his kudos there. Anyway, they suggested the familiar story of Three Little Pigs as a potential silly symphony. By mid-December 1932, gag meetings were being held and a three-page outline was being circulated around the studio. Now, in the original folk story, the wolf eats the first two pigs after he blows down their houses, and then he drops down the chimney of the pig with the brick house and ends up in a pot of boiling water, and it gets eaten himself. So so then we have the Disney version. (laughs) Walt Disney revised the story so that neither the pigs nor the wolf are eaten. It was also Walt who came up with the idea to give the pigs musical instruments and have them sing and dance. Uh, So that goes back again to, you know, Walt loves eccentric music and dancing, you know, routines. So a memo from Walt circulated to his staff in 1932 states, these little pig characters look as if they would work up a very cute and we should be able to develop quite a bit of personality in them might try to stress the angle of the little pig who worked the hardest, received the reward, or some little story that would teach a moral. These little pigs would be dressed in clothes. They will also have household implements, props, etc. to work with and not be kept in the natural state. They will be more like human characters. Albert Herter, hired at the studio in June 1931, designed the pigs, their costumes, and their houses. Animation for Three Little Pigs was underway by mid-February 1933. Much of the scenes are handled by two of the studio's strongest animators, Norm Ferguson and Dick Lundy. Newer advanced artists Fred Moore and Art Babbitt animated much of the remainder. Jack King animates a few brief sequences of the practical pig sitting at his piano. For this cartoon, these animators are cast by character. Lundy and Moore are assigned sequences of the pigs, while Ferguson and Babbitt animated scenes of the big bad wolf. Moore animates a small number of scenes with the wolf as well. 
Now, Freddie Moore developed a new animation technique of the characters' bodies as they followed through with their actions. Squash and stretch, as it became known, meant the volume and curved forms of the pigs' bodies remained consistent as they altered shape by the force of pulling and pushing. Moore's introductory scenes as the Pfeiffer Fiddle and Practical Pig demonstrates these new methods of flexibility in character animation. This impressed his fellow colleagues, and Walt Disney himself, it proved so influential that other animation studios implemented squash and stretch, rendering rubber hose animation almost archaic. And some studios stuck with uh, rubber hose animation. Um, A Biwerks studio stuck with um, rubber hose animation. In the outline for Three Little Pigs, Walt suggested the film could be an operetta with singing and rhyming dialogue. This, along with the musical score by composer Frank Churchill, integrated successfully with the action, and the score is underscored with Churchill's original song, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, which is never played fully intact throughout the cartoon. It is often fragmented or interrupted by the narrative. A publicity release at the time told the story of how, as a child, Frank Churchill had been given three piglets by his mother to look after, and he played them tunes on his harmonica. But a real-life Big Bad Wolf came down from the hills one day and eliminated one of the pigs. I have no idea if that's true or not. Carl Stalling, by this time, had returned to the studio as a freelance arranger and pianist. And Stalling can be heard when the practical pig plays a mocking dramatic piano sequence after each of the wolf's failed attempts to blow down his brick house. Three Little Pigs premiered at the Radio City Music Hall in New York on May 27, 1933. The public response was overwhelming, and as it was shown in neighborhood theaters, it became the most phenomenal short cartoon of its time. Some venues ran the film for so long that hand-drawn beards were added to marquees and one-sheet posters to indicate how long it had been there. The short was released during the middle of the Great Depression, and Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf became a national symbol for Americans to rally against the fear and threat of poverty and the Depression. And apparently I read that you couldn't turn on the radio without hearing this song on, on, on a station at, at some time. And there were all kinds of different versions of it being performed. The success of Walt Disney's first smash hit surprised him and his staff. People rushed to music stores to purchase sheet music of this song, but none had been prepared. Walt sent his musicians to the theater to copy the words and music from the screen to fill the demand for the sheet music. The popularity of the Three Little Pigs generated a huge amount of merchandising, which included storybooks, stationery, playing cards, figurines, soap, watches, Christmas tree lights, sand buckets, sprinkling cans, and countless toys. It became the first film to return a higher gross in merchandising royalties than its box office receipts. And I read um, in one source that it brought in as much revenue as a full-length animated cartoon. 
would later on. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. And this is during the Depression. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Yeah. Now, there were requests from theater owners for more cartoons featuring pigs. And these requests were supported by Roy Disney, who convinced Walt it would be good for the business. Walt later regretted bowing to pressure and producing three more cartoons featuring the characters The Big Bad Wolf, Three Little Wolves, and The Practical Pig. They turned out not to be as memorable as the original, and it prompted Walt to utter his famous statement, You can't top pigs with pigs. It meant that instead of sequels and repeats, that the studio would devote itself to always finding something new. <laughs> well, times they do change, don't they? <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> So when theater owners demanded Disney shorts featuring Dopey from Snow White, Walt didn't even consider those requests, remembering what happened with the pigs. One sequence in the cartoon, which showed the big bad wolf dressed as a Jewish peddler, was cut from the film after its release and was reanimated so the wolf would be a fuller brush man, although one with a Yiddish accent. A nose, glasses, and beard disguise also remained. More changes were made by using the Fuller Brushman footage and redubbing the wolf's voice so that he does not sound stereotypically Jewish. When the film was released on home video, the scene was further edited. The Fuller Brushman line, I'm the Fuller Brushman, I'm giving a free sample, was changed to, I'm the Fuller Brushman, I'm working my way through college for this and all subsequent home video releases. And that's the version you will um, see on Disney+. Plus. I'm surprised they didn't change, I'm the Fuller Brushman, because is, are there still Fuller Brush um, door-to-door salespeople these days? I don't think I've seen any. I no, <laughs> I can't say I have, but I, I it's uh, maybe I don't pay attention enough. I know they were around when I was a boy, because I mean, you got to know your Fuller Brush Man. He came around a few times a year, and they didn't just sell brushes; they sold all kinds of stuff. My mother bought shoe polish from him, and um, window cleaner, and I think furniture polish as well as brushes. They made good brushes. But um, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah, him. like I didn't even like. Was it even brushes that they sold? I mean, that's you would think so because it's yeah. the name. But uh, yeah, they. I guess they branched out as time went on. And but, I guess uh, it's also a Red Skeleton movie um, from 1948, The Full yeah. Brushman. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, Red Skeleton. Yeah, did that. But uh, yeah, they were everywhere when I was a boy. But you had a lot of door-to-door salespeople in those days. Tributes to this silly symphony can be seen in Disney theme parks and film. Uh, Miniatures of the pigs' homes can be seen in the Storybook Land Canal Boats attraction at Disneyland. A poster in the queue area for the Magic Kingdom attraction Mickey's Magic, features the three little pigs and the big bad wolf as the Wolfgang Trio. So I guess they, they must have made up and formed a band at some point. I guess that was a film Walt never made. (laughs) Fiddler Pig, Pfeiffer Pig, and Zeke the Wolf appeared in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. 
A coffee and sandwich shop on Buena Vista Street in Disney California Adventure is named Fiddler, Pfeiffer, and Practical Cafe as a homage to the Three Little Pigs. The shop is decorated with a motif of fifes, fiddles, and pianos. Three Little Pigs inspired animators who were hired at the Walt Disney Studio after its release. Ward Kimball, Milt Call, and Mark Davis were amongst those intrigued by the film when they saw it in theaters. Chuck Jones, an animator at Warner Brothers at the time, recalled in an interview during the short's success, Most of us felt that there was Disney and here were the rest of us just hacking away at the edges. We didn't consider ourselves in the same league. Interesting. Yeah. Because Chuck Jones' work is probably much more remembered than the Silly Symphonies. I'd say that's probably accurate as well. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I I love the Three Little Pigs. This is this is one of my favorite of the Silly Symphonies. Yeah, I I'd, I'd say I'd say this is a shoe in easily for top 5, top 3 even, but uh, it's just it, it's resounding. It's it's lasted it's lasted all these years and mm-hmm. uh I it, everyone still knows the Three Little Pigs for that reason like it's it's mm-hmm. just it's cool it's cool that that it was a cultural phenomenon that has been able to to make it all this time and i, I love that it was kind of like it even was very reminiscent of like with the three little pigs song who's afraid of the big bad wolf kind of having that same cultural significance that proceeded then in the 50s with the ballad of davy crockett it's like it's, yeah. it's wild how you know Disney's been lucky with that over the years. So I mean, obviously, it's because of finding the right formula and and executing it all properly. But it's it, there is no doubt about it. The the Three Little Pigs is one of the most important silly symphonies and cartoons in general that that Walt Disney did. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I agree. Uh, and there are so many great little gags in it. You know, like, I love how uh, the practical pig, how all his furniture is made out of brick <laughs> in his house. And then and then the picture of, of father and mother and father's, uh, uh, you know, sausage links. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really dark humor <laughs> in there. Um, and and then mother is just nursing a whole bunch of um, little piglets. So there's other siblings, you know, around there too. Yeah, somewhere. So, uh, but there's a lot of little things like that in it that uh, are just so funny. Yeah, and it's just I, you know, one of the one of the best ways to to say if something is truly stands the test of time is by looking at looking at what's come after it because you know the obviously the three little pigs is a story before all of this but it's when you think of three little pigs you don't think of any of the other versions you don't think of the three little pigs that you see for a little bit in the shrek movies you you think of <laughs> you think of the the disney three little pigs and that's mm-hmm. that that really shows you how how important it is yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, another important film in the Silly Symphonies was The Old Mill. And this is the first film to use the Walt Disney Studios multiplane camera that added the illusion of three-dimensional depth to the animated films. 
And a great example of that depth can be seen at the beginning of the film, which opens on a foreground spider web with glistening dewdrops, which then rake focuses to the distant mill as the camera pushes in. So the multiplane camera also allowed for the use of special optical effects, such as complex top and bottom light effects and the use of ripple glass, which are plates of optically clear glass that had special patterns ground and polished in them to achieve various types of ripple distortions when artwork was filmed through them. The camera was labor-intensive to operate, with as many as 10 cameramen working to set up each frame. And the camera was enormous as well. Ub Iwerks had invented a series of switches that had each operator um, had to flip once they took care of their task on each frame before the cameraman could expose that frame of film. And in the early years of the studio, the multiplane cameras being operated 24 hours a day with three shifts of camera operators. And the multiplane camera was used for over 50 years on Disney animated feature films from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs to The Little Mermaid. It was replaced by digital technology with the computer animation production system known as CAPS. And that, I think, was used in... um, what the rescuers down under i think was one of the first times it was really used uh yeah to its uh full full potential correct mm-hmm. yeah so um so that's amazing it was it was very expensive to use as well and um to, and there's you can see one at the Walt Disney Family Museum we've talked about that before where it uh, it extends for several floors of the museum and uh and then um, there's a there's one at uh the archives yeah at the Walt Disney Studio and then there's one at Disneyland Paris as well where was the one at Disneyland so, Paris I don't know I think I, I, I but I've always read that and I never came across it when I was there but I, I assumed it was over at the studio. Yeah, I uh, Yeah, I mean things were very weird while I was there because it was set up for the fan days event, and I know they were using the one the animation building that they did like presentations and such. And I, I know that was it, it could have been in there, and it was just mm-hmm. in an area that wasn't getting utilized. But yeah, I, I've only seen the one in the 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 archives which is i think mm-hmm. probably well no because a lot of people get up to san francisco to see the museum so i shouldn't say that but i know the the people who have been lucky enough to go on tours and such they've they've seen the one in the archives and yeah it's just an impressive impressive piece of machinery it is it is it's amazing i think my favorite scene the use of multi-plane camera is uh, the opening scene of Geppetto's Village in Pinocchio, where you start at the roof, and you know the, the bells, the steeple, the bell is ringing, and you just sort of travel over the roofs. You see the birds and all that, and you finally you go through this little alleyway, and then you um, focus in on Geppetto's workshop. And it's an it's amazing. It is. That's one of the. That's got to be one of the longest shots they did with it too. I know they've mm-hmm. done some some long ones, but that's that's a prime example for for one of the greatest ones. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So, 
Yeah, now, the Old Mill was released on November 5th, 1937, and it's a visually stunning story about an old mill in the surrounding countryside, which is a home for all kinds of wildlife, including birds, mice, bats, frogs, and an owl. The mill and its inhabitants are threatened by a fierce summer storm during which the mill looks like it might collapse from the gusting winds. And aside from a slight list, the old mill survives the brutal forces of nature. And by morning, the sky is clear and everything is calm once again as dawn arrives. Now, the animated effects and camera optical techniques developed and honed on the old mill were also used in the first animated feature film, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which was in production at the same time and released about six weeks later. Many of the legendary Disney effects animators worked on this short, including Cy Young, Dan McManus, George Rowley, and Ugo Diorsi, amongst others. These were the artists that formed the first special effects department at the Walt Disney Animation Studio. Prior to a formal special effects department, the character animators did much of their own effects animation when needed and was inconsistent from artist to artist. This specialized group of effects animators were able to bring a visual standardization to elevate quality by contributing their talents to some of the most memorable moments in the studio's early animated feature films. Now, the special effects enhanced by the stunning backgrounds that were painted for the short, many of which were created by Disney artist Claude Coates. So the old mill was more than any animated film up to that point, a true background film. It was those beautiful scenic paintings that captivated the audience, creating a tone and mood that outweighs the animation more than anything else. It was, according to Coates in an interview, I think it kind of opened a door for some scenes to be appreciated for just their scenic value, especially through Snow White, and that same idea went into Pinocchio too. The music for The Old Mill was written by Lee Harline, who is best known for composing the song When You Wish Upon a Star from Pinocchio. Harline's music for The Old Mill serves as a supporting character to the film visuals, creating a complete story that sets the early mood as the setting is established, then builds tension in unison to the approaching storm. The use of musical instruments as sound effects to complement the animation was a common practice and can be heard in scenes like the cattails hitting a dilapidated fence complemented by xylophone notes and some reeds breaking and wobbling in the winds to flute and piccolos. There is a perfect cohesiveness between the musical arrangement and the visuals. The Old Mill won the 1937 Academy Award for Best Short Subjects Cartoons and the Scientific and Technical Academy Award for the Multiplane Camera. In 2015, the United States Library of Congress selected the film for preservation in National Film Registry, finding it culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. It was included as number 14 in the book, The 50 Greatest Cartoons, as selected by 1,000 animation professionals. I love The Old Mill. This is one of my favorites. When I just want to watch something beautiful, I'll turn on The Old Mill. And watch that. Yeah, it's. Uh, I I would 
I would say this is definitely up there with my top favorite Silly Symphonies. This is one, again, I already mentioned uh, the Disney Halloween treat. This is one of the segments that was on that. So I have this weird this weird relationship with the old mill in that way because I, I there's a sort of spookiness to it as things really ramp up mm-hmm. and the weather starts getting bad that really does kind of... It it gets to me. It it makes me it makes me kind of scared even to this day. I think probably because of those memories of flashing back to when I was a kid and yeah. watching it and getting getting kind of kind of terrified by it. Even though it's not inherently scary, there's just maybe I am afraid of storms after the entire intro <laughs> and me talking about tornadoes too. But yeah. uh, I I definitely. I I just it's it's just beautiful. Again, going off what I said with the ugly duckling in this time period, animation was just at its best and and I I think I think this just one is well done. It's fast paced, it's exciting, but then when it, it it knows when to slow down at the beginning and the end, it just it really does bring a calming sense over you as well too. It's just mm-hmm. it's interesting all around. It is. Well, maybe I think they associate with Halloween too because there are a lot of bats in it <laughs> flying around. But what's what's interesting too is that you see the development of um, how their technique with drawing animals and animating animals. Because when you look at the early silly symphonies, where they're still more sort of wobbly and um, uh, you know hose-like, very cartoony, they're very realistic. In this film, although you know there's there's still there's there's still a cartoon element to them, and you can see how much they've progressed in just a few years. You know those those art classes Walt had them sitting through really paid off, and of course this is a lead in to you know they'll be they'll be working on Bambi, and where you know very realistic animals, you know in that. So oh yeah no I I think that's part of what I do love about it it is the realism of the animals. So anytime, anytime you can nail a realistic animal that doesn't come off to be cartoonish, it's just, it adds a believability to the entire, the entire sense mm-hmm. of it. And, and no, even though some of the animals go through uh, cartoon antics, you know, the, the owl just can never catch a break for the most part. With yeah. it. <laughs> but the water. It, yeah. it just, it's still, it still is it still is believable you still feel like these are real animals put in this situation mm-hmm. just really well done yeah and those two doves they just ride out the storm they never move uh, yeah yeah <laughs> it's just so amazing uh-huh. anyway well now the three mills from the short were seen in miniature on the storybook land canal boats attraction at disneyland but on december 20th 2014 they were replaced by buildings from the 20, Disney's 2013 musical film Frozen, so they were replaced by Arendelle. But the miniature windmills were put in storage by Walt Disney Imagineering. So I'm hoping, like, when they removed Toad Hall to put in Agrabah, I'm hoping, and then they found a new place for Toad Hall, I'm hoping that they will um, find a place for the old mills someday in that attraction. Um, Tom Sawyer Island at the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World features a homage to the old mill in the Harper's Mill walkthrough. I don't know if it's still there, because um, I didn't go on Tom Sawyer Island last time I was there, but there was an 
animatronic owl in the rafters and a bird's nest in a broken cog of the mill wheel. It's been there so, the past couple times I've gone, but it's it's probably been about a year to two years since I've been over on Tom Sawyer Island. So uh, it's it seems like one of those those uh, changes that it's it doesn't impact in any way. So if like if the owl was broken, then maybe they would remove it for that. But otherwise, I, I can't see them ever removing it. It's just it's not it's not yeah. really getting in the way of anything. Yeah, I hope not. I hope they leave it there for the historic reference and see how many people really do um, figure out why it's there and the bird nest. Now, the old mill was a snack bar and Ferris wheel type attraction at Fantasyland at Disneyland Paris, but the Ferris wheel closed in 2000. That's too bad. That's a clever use, clever homage to the old mill. Now, between 1929 and 1939, Walt Disney produced 75 Silly Symphonies. The Silly Symphonies inspired comic strips, comic books, children's books, and records. Seven films won the Academy Award for Best Animated Short Film, and creatively, the task of creating these shorts proved invaluable for Walt Disney. Due to time constraints, Walt had to delegate responsibilities to other animators and directors and trust that they could execute his vision for these shorts. This made Walt more comfortable with the role of being a producer as opposed to a director, which would allow him to focus on being more creative and productive. The Silly Symphonies pushed the medium of animation further than it had ever gone before, making even bolder experiments like Fantasia possible. Whilst Walt Disney did not personally invent all of the animation milestones, he perfected and embellished them. One of Walt's greatest talents that contributed to the success of his studio is that he seemed to know what would work and what the public would like. So that that's a brief history of the Silly Symphonies. And my hope is it will this will get you to uh, really appreciate them and and realize that if it were not for the Silly Symphonies, we would not have the Disney animated features that we have today because the Silly Symphonies helped Walt and his animators develop the skill and technique and artistry that made those films possible. That's well put, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you're done listening to this show, go watch those um, 20 Silly Symphonies that are on Disney+. Plus. And if you have the Walt Disney Treasure series, um, the tins, the two Silly Symphony tins, pull those out and watch them, you know, reacquaint yourself with them and and, um, and just behold the, the wonders of them. And, and give them the due they deserve. Don't let them be lost in animation history. And if this is released and Michael still doesn't have his uh, his first set of the Silly Symphonies, Walt Disney <laughs> Treasures tin set, do not uh, try to get it from... It. Do not try to 
outbid him for it on eBay or, or swoop in and buy it before him. So it's, that would not be okay. So let yes. Michael have it first. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I, I always lose on eBay. But anyway, but anyway, but now there next there's there's not going to be anything silly about uh, this week in Disney history. Uh, how's that for a segue? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Okay, Craig, here we are for the week of June 14th, and this week, there was a lot to choose from. Some weeks, I just scrape. You know, it's it's all about what premiered on the Disney Channel each day. Oh, gosh. But there were so many people born this week who were important, and so many things open, primarily at Disneyland this week, that it was hard to choose what, what to put in here. But, um... But I so I had to make those tough choices here. So I hope you enjoy them. Okay, so we're going to start out with June 14th. Disneyland's sailing ship Columbia opened on the Rivers of America on June 14th, 1958. It is a full-scale version of the first ship to carry the American flag around the world. Disney shipbuilders couldn't find plans for the original Columbia, so they relied heavily on the plans of a famous ship that had similar dimensions. What was the name of this famous ship? Okay, I'm going to have to talk this one out crazily for a second because I do know this. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I know this trivia and I know we've talked about it on this show before. So... I'm going to going to get there. I know it's um it's the mutiny of the bounty ship, right? That's correct. It's the HMS Bounty. There we go. Of of the mutiny on fame. Yeah, Captain Bly's ship had similar dimensions. Yeah, so it has cost $300,000 to build. Boy, that's just a drop in the bucket today. <laughs> So, um, Fowler's Harbor, named after Admiral Joseph Fowler, who helped build Disneyland, is also officially opened on this day to dock the new ship. A dedication ceremony takes place with Admiral Fowler and Walt Disney. I love the Columbia. So when, um, when before we had Fantasmic, I would like to sail on the Columbia during the day and then the Mark Twain at night because they would light up. Rivers of America at night beautifully, but a lot of times they had Dixieland um, musicians mm-hmm. on the on the um, Mark Twain at night, so you could listen to Dixieland jazz as you went around Rivers of America. It was great. Yeah. So. Anyway, but when now we have Fantasmic, so those days are done, and okay. it's Fantasmic. Right, it is. Okay, okay, June 15th at Disneyland. Yeah, and both of those ships are in Fantastic too, which is even cooler. Okay. June 15th at Disneyland, Don DeForest Silver Banjo Barbecue Restaurant in Frontierland opened on June 15th, 1957. Operated by well-known actor Don DeFore and his brother Vern, the restaurant is inspired by a silver banjo their father had given them. Where was the restaurant located? Where in Frontierland was the restaurant located? Um, 
I would. I mean, because it has barbecue in the title, my best guess would be back where Big Thunder Ranch was, but I'm not sure about that. No, because where Big Thunder Ranch was, that was Mind Train Through Nature's Wonderland. Oh, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, then I would say it was uh, somewhere else in Frontierland. It was. You're correct. Any <laughs> guesses where? It's still there. Um, the building is still there. It's just we know it by something else today. Okay. Well, so it wouldn't be the Golden Horseshoe. And... It wouldn't be anything once you get over into New Orleans Square, so it kind of has to be, um, it kind of has to be like the, why am I even blanking on the name of it? The, because I keep wanting to call it Liberty Inn, and I know it's not, because that's what oh, we have. River Bell Terrace? River Bell Terrace, yeah. Yeah. Right. At one time, River Bell Terrace was actually two restaurants, and it was Aunt Jemima's Restaurant where you can meet Aunt Jemima. Right, and yeah. then right next to Aunt Jemima's was Don DeForest Silver Banjo Barbecue Restaurant. And the Silver Banjo is the only concession in Disneyland with the name of a real living person. Although at this time, Art Linkletter owns the Kodak concession in Disneyland. His name is not visible anywhere. That was his payment for... Um, for um, hosting the shows and all that kind of stuff doing everything he did for Walt for Disneyland was he asked for the Kodak concession and Walt gave it to him that's awesome yeah I'm sure uh, I'm sure Art Linkletter really he did well with that concession (laughs) I can only imagine yeah (laughs) Yeah. okay June 16th a 3D film began its two year run in Disneyland's Tomorrowland on June 16, 1984. It was the first 3D movie created by Walt Disney Imagineering for a Disney theme park. It first opened in Epcot in 1982. What was the name of this film? I believe this was uh, Magic Journeys. Mm hmm. Yeah, featured it's featuring the song Making Memories by the Sherman Brothers. The 70 millimeter Magic Journeys looks at the world to the eyes of a child. The eyes of a child who maybe took some cough medicine with a lot of codeine in it, because that was a really loopy film. So, I liked it though. Yeah, it's, but we got this was ju- we got to watch uh, Magic Journeys before the one. Were you? At, yeah, you were at that that. Um, the Destination D that year, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, cool little movie. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's a funny little movie, but the um, I, I remember this was during the time when when they were updating Epcot, and the Disney executives are sort of balking at the cost of updating these pavilions and the future world pavilions and all that and marty sklar said we can save money by opening uh some of these pavilions uh, and also at um opening some of these uh, attractions at disneyland you know when they were building epcot and all that stuff so that's why we got like um wonders of china in tomorrowland or yeah in tomorrowland and they changed our lincoln to have the uh, Great Moments of Mr. Lincoln to have the um, Two Brothers segment mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from American Journeys and, um, you know, and stuff like that. They were desperate. 
to to do stuff. Although the two brothers works, yeah, I think in in the Lincoln. A lot of people probably think it was there all along. It makes me laugh so much. But are, are you aware of a, a podcast called Podcast the Ride that a bunch of comedians I'm, in Los Angeles? I'm sorry, Angeles you broke do? up just a bit. Oh, sorry. No. Um, have you heard of Podcast the Ride? No. It's a it's another podcast. They it's comedians in California that you know they they are all huge Disney fans. Not really into like sites and and boards and stuff like like the level that we're on, but they appreciate going mm-hmm. and their groups and they they do a lot of funny content with that stuff. Completely different from what we do, so uh, it's probably not an accurate thing to just jump over there because i mentioned them on this uh it, it's completely different but I, I i don't listen to everything they do but i follow them still on twitter and i listen as i see like funny stuff that they post and just in the past week they posted this hilarious little video meme on uh on twitter where it was talking about how the main street electrical parade would be uh, adding the two brothers float as part of it. And they, so they did like a, someone did it for them or they did it. It's like a little animation of the main street electrical parade, the drum, but instead it's got the light up version of the two brothers. And then they again had someone do it or they did it themselves. They, they took the Baroque down score and they inserted a synth version of two brothers in the middle to fit it right along. And it made oh, me gosh. laugh so much because it actually worked out. It worked perfectly, but uh, I, I'm sorry to derail us on that joke. It just, as soon as you brought up two brothers, it, it made me giggle. So, yeah. yeah they, and they tacked from, um, I think from, uh, uh, you know, the ending that, that we have, what is it? Is it American from American what what's the ending song um, that we have now in Lincoln and it oh gosh it golden, came, golden dreams golden dream yeah they they added that to it that came over so yeah they did all kinds of stuff anyway so hopefully that reduced the cost enough for Epcot so okay June 17th what beloved classic debuted at Disneyland for the first time on June 17th 1972 can you say the question one more time did i miss a land in there or did you just say what disneyland classic opened what what beloved what beloved classic debuted at disneyland for the first time on june 17th 1972 okay so not no land in there so um oh i think i'm gonna take a guess on it but I think it was something that I just referenced potentially, and was it Main Street Electrical Parade? It was. Yes, I thought it was funny that you referenced. I thought I didn't send you this my list, did I? Yeah, it was. Yeah, and that's I said the first time because it's uh, returned many times. Um, the floats at that time included the Blue Fairy, Casey Junior Circus Train, Alice in Wonderland, a Chinese Dragon, Dumbo Circus, Cinderella's Ball, It's a Small World, and the American Finale. So um, I remember that version. It's a small world was mainly flats uh, they pushed and then um, that were lit up. And then the dolls on pedestals, some of the dolls that they also cast members also pushed. 
<laughs> oh, they're on wheels. Oh, that, yeah. Okay, and June 18th, um, Disney's 37th animated feature was generally released in the United States on June 18th, 1999. What is the name of this film? Ugh, 99, Tarzan. Yep, that's why I put it in there, because I know you don't like it. <laughs> we talked about this a couple weeks ago. <laughs> we did. Yep, based did. on the classic... Yeah. Based on the classic story Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs, it is directed by Chris Buck and Kevin Lima. The soundtrack features five songs by Phil Collins, who will later win both an Academy Award and a Grammy Award. To create the sweeping 3D backgrounds, the production team has developed a 3D painting and rendering technique known as Deep Canvas. This technique allows artists to produce CGI background that looks like a traditional painting. For this advancement, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences will later award the creators of Deep Canvas a Technical Achievement Award in 2003. So, Craig, look at all the awards and accolades this film got. How could you not like it? I don't believe you... Did you... I, I, I didn't think you mentioned anything like important, like the... Academy Award for Best Picture or anything. So, it's, you <laughs> oh, kinda, no. so I mean, what? So he, Phil Collins, won a, an Academy Award and a Grammy for it. Anyone can win a Grammy. That's like the easiest award <laughs> to win. And, uh, what else was out in 1999 that could have even won an Academy Award for the music? So I think I, I think no some idea. of those awards were just a given. Uh huh. <laughs> anyway. All right. I like it. I don't mind it too much. So, anyway, okay. June 19th, Freedomland USA, a themed amusement park in New York City, opens its doors. On, on June 19th, oh, I didn't put in the year, but it's like 1964. Um, built in the shape of the United States, a 205-acre park's main theme is American history. It was conceived and developed by a man who had been part of the planning, construction, and management team of Disneyland. What was his name? Oh, I feel like... I will know the answer as soon as you tell me, but it's not coming into my brain right now. Yeah. Bob Gurr, I think on our show, called him a crook. <laughs> it's got... So, I think it's a short... It's a shortened name, right? Like, uh, uh, mm-hmm. initials. But I can't... Yeah. It's not coming mm-hmm. to me. Cornelius Vanderbilt Wood, better C. known v. as C.V. Wood. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The same evening, television's The Ed Sullivan Show presents a promotional tour of the park and refers to it as Disneyland's equal on the East Coast. Like Disneyland, Freedomland is divided into seven regions, Little Old New York, Old Chicago, the Great Plains, the Old Southwest, San Francisco, New Orleans, and Satellite City, a town of the future modeled on Walt Disney's Tomorrowland. The park will only remain in business for four years, and it struggled for all those times, proving why Walt did not choose New York as a place to build um, his theme park. Yeah. So, anyway, yeah, we'll have to do a show on CV Woods sometime. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to yeah. to learn more. I'm sure you can you can dig up a lot of extra dirt. 
Oh, there's there's all kinds of stuff there. I mean, the main reason that he and Walt had the falling out, well, one of them, was because C.V. Wood, he was like, you know, the manager of the park and at Disneyland when it first opened. But C.V. Wood tried to get people, the, the other, you know, area managers not to be loyal to him rather than Walt. And, you know, being a little divisive. And when Walt got wind of that... That was it. That, it was over for C.V. Wood. So, um, so that was one of many things. So, poor guy. Anyway, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. June twentieth, a Walt Disney animated live action feature film debuted on June twentieth, nineteen forty one. The premiere, held at Pantages Theater in Hollywood, is disrupted by a mob of Walt striking Disney cartoonists. The police cordon off Hollywood Boulevard around the theater for fear of what the rampaging cartoonists might do. What is the name of this film? Uh, That would be Reluctant Dragon. That's right. Caesar, I had to put in one of your favorite ones in here after having one of your least favorites. Yeah, and this, of course, is starring comedian Robert Benchley. And it's the f- the first third of the film is in black and white, and the remaining two thirds are in Technicolor. Uh, Robert Benchley visits a Walt Disney Studio in Burbank to sell Walt Disney on the idea of making a film of Kenneth Graham's book, The Reluctant Dragon. After exploring an art class, a dialogue stage, sound effects stage, a multiplane camera department, story and animation departments, he discovers Walt has already finished the cartoon version of his story. This is the first Walt Disney animated feature to incorporate extensive live action footage and the only theatrical release to feature Walt himself. This is a terrific film. If you really want to go behind the scenes at the Walt Disney Studios in in its day, uh, this is a great one to watch and see how a film, an animated film, was made at the time. You meet a whole lot of the nine old men um, in this film too. So this is one to have in your collection. Honestly, it's the part that I can do without is the animated section with the, the reluctant <laughs> dragon. I mean, it's still it's still entertaining and good, but. It's it's one of those it's one of those things that at the time it was made for the reasons it was for the the promotion and such. But I I don't think I don't think that Walt or anyone would have predicted that sitting here now in 2020 that back in the 1940s if they could have filmed an even longer in depth look in and around the studio in that heyday and then continue updating that over the years i don't think they would ever be like they would probably never say like oh people people want that people people don't want that at all and there's a group of us out here who would clamor to have that kind Mm -hmm. of content and more of it and well that was part of Walt's motivation because he was getting so many letters and requests for tours of the studio and and they just couldn't do it they weren't set up for it so that that was his way of sort of answering those requests was through this film that's clever so, okay yeah, yeah. I, I, can, I can see that from it then yeah mm-hmm. yeah so uh, you know and that, and that was you know his motivation for the Mickey Mouse Park because you know, because he, he originally it was going to incorporate a little tour of the studio, you know, like mm-hmm. a little train tour, and all that. But of course, that 
grew and grew and grew the idea for that until it became Disneyland. So yeah, this was his way of just saying, you want to see what how to make a cartoon? Here's the way we do it. And it would have in, been... in a humorous way, yeah. and then and then to promote the Reluctant Dragon, yeah, yeah, it's they they could have just done even more and left the Reluctant I Dragon agree. on the the cutting room floor. So <laughs> I mean, I'll go back and wait for the director's cut. Yeah, the part that I could have done, I, I wasn't really all that interested in, in Robert Benchley's home life. <laughs> so oh, that sets up the entire story, though. <laughs> I know it does. I'm it joking. does. The beginning it's, and the end. <laughs> it's, it's it's not needed. No. <laughs> so anyway, oh well. Well, Craigie did very well this week. Oh, thank you. Well, in talking about the significance of the silly symphonies, we only discussed a few of the shorts. So in our next episode. Craig and I are going to discuss our favorite Silly Symphonies. Some will be available on Disney+. Plus. Uh, some may be available on the Walt Disney Treasure series, Silly Symphonies and more Silly Symphonies. And we'll let you know why these are our favorites. Um, you can let us know which ones are your favorites on Twitter, at ConnectingWalt. We'll be interested in comparing your list with ours. So I referred to several books, articles, and websites during my research for this episode, including Walt Disney's Silly Symphonies, a companion to the classic cartoon series by Russell Merritt and J.B. Kaufman. Uh, some websites, Oh My Disney, The Serious History of Silly Symphonies, San Francisco Silent Film Festival, there's an article, Silly Symphonies Essay by Richard Hildreth. Inside the Magic, Walt Disney's Silly Symphonies, they did a nice little series on that. Uh, Magic and Pixels, Flowers and Trees, Walt's Milestone. The Old Mill Celebrates 80th Anniversary by Dave Bossert, friend of our show, um, for cartoon research. Walt Disney's Three Little Pigs by Devin Baxter for cartoon research. Disney's Ham Actors, The Three Little Pigs by Jim Corcus under the pseudonym Wade Sampson for Mouse Planet, another friend of our show. And then the Disney Wiki. And Craig will have links to all these in the show notes. Craig, until next time, where can our listeners connect with you on the Diz Unplugged network of shows? Uh, well, on all the different shows that I'm on, Disney World, Universal, give or take. Yeah, if you want fresh theme park content, I was at Universal multiple days last week. And, and so finally getting fresh content on youtube because of it so uh please go back and and watch that if you haven't yet and uh, i know we have a lot of listeners on here so i, I know that well mostly listeners because that's how it's available right now but if you do <laughs> uh if you are interested in our videos and, and such uh please go over there and take it off check it out not take it off that makes no sense at all uh and yeah let me let me know what you think but uh beyond that you can connect with me on social media on facebook twitter and instagram uh, you can connect with me there at teleclaster what about you michael well, you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Um, there's a new page with, well, it's not new anymore, but it has a Connecting with Walt banner. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And, and as I said earlier, you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. 
If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyUnplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. Well, thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.